Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 6. The Noble and Most Ancient House of Black. Mrs. Weasley followed them upstairs, looking grim. I want you all to go straight to bed. No talking, she said as they reached the first landing. We've got a busy day tomorrow. I expect Ginny's asleep, she added to Hermione, so try not to wake her up. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoldan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So there is a very famous story in my family that my father finds very charming and I find very embarrassing. And it is the fact that one night at dinner, when I was like eight or nine years old, my family was just like politely eating dinner one night, as we did. And I turned to my dad sort of out of nowhere and I said, you know, dad, you are really lucky that mom didn't leave you just because you had a brain tumor and then just politely kept eating my chicken as if this was a normal comment to have made. And this story has become like an identity marker for who I am. I get teased in my family as like being the person who always pushes up their glasses and is like, you know, dad, I'm a know-it-all. And this is the joke in my family. And so whenever I say anything know-it-all-ish at all, my whole family is like, you know, dad. But what's so interesting to me about the story is that I have zero recollection of this happening. The thing that I do remember, and the only thing I remember sort of about this, is I remember watching the news with my parents and Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, being interviewed about the fact that he had just left his wife, even though she had cancer and was possibly dying. And I do remember thinking, oh no, are mom and dad going to get divorced? Dad is sick. I guess this is something that grown-ups do. So I remember having the fear 
but I do not remember turning to my dad and saying this. I do not remember like apparently everybody thinking it was hysterical. And yet it has become this like identifier for me in my family. And I think that the identifier is true, but it's just so funny to me that this has become a touchstone of how my family sees me. And I would like swear on a stack of Bibles that it didn't happen. And I think memory is so funny in that way and that we see that in this chapter, right? This whole house is just one big memory for Sirius. And we get to hear some of that from his point of view. And then we a little bit get to hear it from Creature's point of view. And we get to watch Harry try to make meaning of it. But there are all of these memories that took place in this house that we don't have any access to. We're only getting one version of the story. And apparently there are whole big things in our lives that we just don't remember at all. So I'm excited to delve into those questions around memory with you. First of all, I love this story. Oh my God, I can just imagine you sitting there. You know, Dad. (laughs) You know, Dad, actually. But it makes so much sense. I mean, I have this with photographs all the time that I think I remember things that I actually just have a photograph of and that has kind of created a memory. And I think about the way in which memory is always shifting, you know, it's not a snapshot of what happened. It's our relationship to that. So juicy. Let's dig in. But first, let's test your memory. On your mark, get set, go. So in this chapter, we learn all about Sirius's family. We learn that he's related to Tonks and that he's kind of related to Molly and Arthur. And we're learning that their family is dark wizards and that we learn about Narcissa and, and, and Bellatrix. And it's all very terrifying. And we see all sorts of items around the house, including a locket that will not open. Oh my God, spoiler alert. Um, and Creature is walking around and he's kind of muttering to himself and saying like, you know, I, I hate you all, you filthy mudbloods. And Hermione is being really naive and saying he's just having a bad day. I have a language complaint for culture. Okay. We now say spoiler alert when we mean foreshadowing. Like, you didn't spoil anything. You pointed out something that's foreshadowing. I'm a literary noob. No, you're great. This is not your fault. It's a cultural problem. You are its victim. Vanessa, it's time for your 30-second recap. Here we go. Three, two, one. Stop. They have to kill all the doxies and Fred and George's company is doing really well over mail order. Um, and they're being creeps with Molly. Molly like lays down on a, uh, sits down on a bag of rats, which is just like so disgusting. Um, Harry forgot about his trial and then is like, oh, right, I have a trial. Sirius Buckbeak is up in a, like in a room, which sort of seems sad. Um, and yeah, other than that, they're just like cleaning and snacking. That sounds like a great afternoon. <laughs> like, once I get in a cleaning mood, I love it. Oh, no. No? No. I need to lean into the snacking. <laughs> if I put out a plate of cheese and crackers and then was like, now I'm going to clean. And like, every time I did half an hour, I was like, little snack break. I love I'd this. I'd be into it. So, Vanessa, we're exploring this chapter through the theme of memory. Where did it strike you in this reading? Well, I really just saw Creature as an embodiment of memory. Ooh. So he really symbolizes to me sort of institutional memory, the way that we like often want to ignore people who have deep and like institutional and sometimes very painful memory. 
And I just think that, yeah, Creature is a grumpy jerk, but I wondered to what extent Sirius's anger towards Creature is that he saw it all. He remembers it all. It's a way that Sirius can't escape history because he has Creature that embodies that history and is literally saying it out loud everywhere he goes. Right. I mean, he obviously adds some more like color commentary than just reciting facts that he witnessed. He's not a totally reliable witness, but... He haunts the house. And I'm really interested in institutional memory. And they're going around and they're trashing everything in this house. And Creature is like, no, these are valuable. And again, he's doing it with like disgusting hair growing out of his ear and while saying like racist slurs. I'm not saying he's perfect, but I'm just saying like he's like this archivist who's saying this museum matters. He's making out with a pair of trousers that used to belong to Sirius's dad. Do we see that? No, that's a rumor. (laughs) But yes, I mean, Creature sees value in the things around him in a way that Molly and everyone who's cleaning and certainly Sirius don't see value, right? To them, it's trash that's in the way. It's dirty. It needs to go for the new purpose of this house. And Creature wants to hold on to what it used to be, what it used to symbolize. And I think that's one of the difficult things around memory is that change is the only constant, as they say. And so memory is inherently about how things used to be different. And if, like Creature, you were in a better place (laughs) in those times, right? Like, he was still a house elf, and he was still, you know, responsible to fulfilling orders from his master and mistress. But he took a kind of twisted pride in the supremacy and the horrific perspectives that this family embodied well his life had a purpose well that absolutely he had a place in the family and now now he doesn't and i I mean what's interesting to me is that for 10 years he lived alone in this house so i think in some way creature transformed even the house that it used to be so that it became his house and i wonder if creature is more complex than we think i don't i don't think he stayed static after the black family died like I think he sees this as his house now, and he's kind of using the Black family in some way as a memory that legitimizes his ownership. This is just reminding me of conversations around Confederate statues in the South. Oh, wow. Creature is this person who's like, things were better back then, even though he doesn't really have a memory of the way that things were better. and They weren't actually better for him. He was actually still entirely exploited, and it was part of the system to exploit him. But he has this romantic view of the way things were in the past. And now that we're in this new moment of the house is now actually supposed to be this totally other thing, he's like, you will not tear down this statue of Robert E. Lee. He was a great man. And everybody else is saying like, no, Robert E. Lee never mattered. We need to tear it down and trash it to make room for, you know, this public library. We need to move forward. I I guess my slightly academic point of view is these artifacts should be kept, but they should be kept in like the history of thinking about wizard supremacy museum not in the headquarters for the order but i i do think that molly and sirius are they're being a little bit too lax with memory institutional memory matters and to your point change is good change is constant so let's change the context around these things but that doesn't mean that they're trash It's so interesting to think about the memory of things and what they symbolize in some way. A place in the text that really struck me was as they're walking through this living room and they're cleaning the curtains from these doxies and all sorts of things. The text tells us the carpet exhaled little clouds of dust every time someone put their foot in it. 
And I love that image of the carpet breathing, like this kind of image of the physical house as a living thing that inhales dust, but also the stories and what's happened in this place. And now that these people are here, it's exhaling these stories. It just made me think how we have memory language about like foam memory and water memory. And as we are increasingly wearing things with artificial intelligence, literally the things on our bodies are going to have memories, even if it's just tracking the run that we did three days ago. What does it mean for things to have memories? Like even if it ends up in a museum, like in an archive, it holds a place in someone's memory if it's there. I don't know that I agree that like my phone has a memory. It has a record. Yeah, like a record is a fact and a memory is the story we tell about the fact. Right, but also if I read the record of all of the soldiers who fought in Vietnam, I don't have a memory of mm. of those people. I read their names and imagine stories. It matters whether or not you can claim even faulty access to the actual experience. Well, this is what's so interesting because in this chapter – Harry remembers something he only saw through someone else's memory. He has access to Dumbledore's memories through the Pensieve, and that's how he recognizes the Lestrange name, which comes up on, on the genealogy tree. And so in the magical world, that rule that for us is true does not apply, because he literally can embody an experience and remember someone else's memory, which makes me think like how private the idea or the experience of memory really is like in our world no one can access my memories do you think that's true because what that moment made me think of was videos of police brutality we now have all of these videos of especially black people being killed by police officers that go viral and i am always very conscious of the decision as to whether or not i want to watch that mm. because First of all, there are questions about voyeurism, right? Of like, do I really want to be watching this like very private movement? But it feels like a an important political thing to witness. But then there's just like the selfish question of like, do I want this memory? Mm. Do I want to watch someone get killed, right? Mm. And so I do think that with smartphones, to your point, we're having more and more access to each other's memories. It's not perfect access, obviously, but... Those body cams or those dash cams, we are seeing more and more of what one another see. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'd only thought about the reality of watching the record, right? Watching mm -hmm. the fact, but I, I hadn't thought about the memory of watching the fact, which then lingers with us. That's right. really interesting. I mean, memory, the way our bodies respond to memory, I think is also fascinating. That There's sort of an inherent kind of forgetfulness that's necessary in order to make it through. And there are moments, you know, I had this recently where you kind of unearth new memories or you have a different story that you're able to put together about what happened because suddenly you have new information. And it's so destabilizing because suddenly you're doubting things that you thought you knew about yourself. So there's inherent like power in memory and like who controls information that shapes memories. And I just even think about the questions Dumbledore must have asked himself about which memories am I going to give Harry access to? Just like in the last chapter, we saw like, how much are we going to tell the children about the Order of the Phoenix and what's going on? Dumbledore's had to do that with the Pensieve as well and may have made bad decisions. Yeah. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Vanessa, where else in this chapter do you see this theme of memory? We literally see it, and Sirius sort of walks us through it, through this huge tapestry on the wall that I imagine to be like the most disgusting hugest, moth-eaten, stinky, weird thing ever. See, I imagined it as this, like, enormous, imposing, actually quite beautiful physical object. But with these, like, little holes where people have been burned (laughs) out of the family. I mean, it's so intense. That is so interesting, right? The idea that you can burn someone out because then you see the burn mark. So it's not like they're actually erased, Yeah, I mean, it's so ironic because I feel like I've come across this in a slightly different way where my extended family all have a shared house on the beach in Holland and my sister created this beautiful kind of wall art spiral of the genealogy of all the cousins and second cousins and everyone who goes there. And at some point my uncle got divorced and has a new partner and like, what do we do with this like thing on the wall? And it was kind of like a political thing that was uncomfortable because you don't want to leave a new partner out, but you're also not going to get rid of an old partner who's the parent of their children. You know, all of this kind of difficulty. So as much as we like laugh at the (laughs) the burning out of Sirius and various uncles have been good to him and things, these questions are very real when you're trying to represent family. Like those relationships are hard. Oh, yeah. And just if you, like, go through a breakup, if you trash every photo that your partner was in, you're, like, potentially erasing whole trips that you went on or, right, like, whole memories. No, this is, like, a very live 
question. I mean, what to hold on to and what to yeah. trash. Like, Yeah, and you're right. It burning a hole through the tapestry does not erase them. It, it actually draws more attention to them. Right. It would be as if rather than trashing a photo of you and your partner, you just cut out their head and then put it back in the frame. <laughs> you know what my grandparents would say when my mom was dating someone to that to the boyfriend? Can you stand on the side just in case we break up, we can cut you off? They would literally say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they that, did. That is really good strategy. I'm also curious to know, like, when was this magical item created? Like, who created it? Because there has been this massive craze about understanding your family's genealogy and ancestors.com and even things like 23andMe to kind of get a sense of, oh, I'm 23% Uzbeki and whatever else. I think as people age, this question comes up more and more. You, You see the finite end of your own life. And so you want to see how you fit within a bigger tapestry of of history in a way. And I mean, even the title of this chapter, right, the ancient and noble, both of those things are inherently about lineage and memory. And there's something there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's something about age. I don't know that I agree that it's when we age, though. You know, I, I have a friend who just did this because she now has young kids. And so she wants to be able to mm. tell them stories about who they are and where they come from. And for various reasons, they don't know much of their historical family history. So I feel like it's when we are transitioning from one phase in our lives to another that we like to think about our historical context. And I mean, these things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com are also very complicated, you know, going back to this thing of records, you're implicating not just yourself, but all of your family DNA is accessible through a database. And there are questions now as to whether the FBI and police forces can access this DNA. A serial killer who wasn't found for like 30 years in California got caught because one of his distant relatives uploaded their DNA through 23andMe. And so the role of records like matters materially in people's lives. The fact that this document exists and that Harry stares at it, spoiler alert, is going to help him solve a horcrux later. That's an actual spoiler alert. Vanessa, I'm so excited that this week we're returning to Lectio Divina. So I'm going to choose a passage at random, and we will read it through our four-stage reading process. And the text is, Deftly spraying two doxies at once, as they soared straight for his nose, Harry moved closer to George and muttered out of the corner of his mouth, What are skiving snack boxes? So what's happening on our first kind of stage of Lectio? What's happening on a literal story level? So Harry is chatting with Fred and George about their covert company that they are running with the money that he gave them. And they are simultaneously killing doxies or cleaning doxies, I should say. So Harry is spraying the doxies to clean them. And the reason they're talking about it is because Fred and George are stealing some of the doxies in order to like learn more about their properties in order to make this new thing that they are making called Skiving Snack Boxes. And Harry wants to know what those are. 
I love it. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm so good at this. So as we think about the second stage of lecture, we want to think allegorically. So are there words in this sentence that remind us of other parts of the Harry Potter story or stories elsewhere, songs, maybe pieces of art that we've encountered? We want to kind of let our creative mind take over from our rational analysis and see what we come up with. So I'm going to read it again. Deftly spraying two doxies at once as they soared straight for his nose, Harry moved closer to George and muttered out of the corner of his mouth, what a skiving snack box is. You know what I'm reminded of is, is actually Quidditch, like soaring straight for his nose. Like I'm just thinking about Harry's skill on a broom, his power as he's flying to chase the snitch the kind of skill and subtlety that you need on the broom as you're dodging and weaving around, like trying to be unseen by the other team seeker. What about you? I mean, what these doxies remind me of are like little fairies and like fairy stories right there. They're described like they have wings and they have these sharp teeth. And in Jane Eyre, she uses a lot of fairy and sprite language when she's waiting for an idea to come to her, she says that she like gets out of bed and she paces for a while and then she lies back down and the idea comes to her and it's as if a fairy had left it on her pillow. And so I'm just reminded of like the dual use of these fairies that they need to be expelled from the house because they're sort of poisonous and dangerous. But Fred and George are like, nope, this is going to be awesome. You know, just reading it now again, I'm thinking kind of of like a bad action movie, like two partners in crime, like taking on various multiple things and slap, bash, boom, and then with like a funny word to their partner, you know, like I, it has that kind of comedic timing and an action moment. Yeah, it's like a husband and wife team who's like talking about the laundry while like killing bad guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um, I do think that this is supposed to be like a really light moment in all of this muck. They're like spraying fairies and talking about ways to skive off class, right? You know, we always talk about the twins as kind of the comedic relief, right? They're the grave diggers in this proverbial Shakespeare in some way. And what I like about this moment where we're learning more about the process of making the snack boxes is that actually there's a lot of pain involved. And it's making me think about comedians who you know, often suffer from depression while making people laugh as their profession. It's making me think about people who work out a lot uh, or who are really committed to, you know, intense physical fitness where they say what builds their community is suffering and laughter. And like the fact that they're twins means that they can they can withstand this kind of like physical pain of vomiting extensively. I don't think I've seen the cost of making the laughter and the joy for the twins before. And I'm beginning to think about that. I thought about that too while reading this sentence because we only see in previous books the way that they're a little bit willing to experiment on other people. Yes. But I was like, oh, that's probably phase two of their testing. After they've tested it on themselves, they want to see if Neville turns into a canary. And they want to do that to make sure it doesn't like just work on them. And it's terrible and you should not experiment on people without their permission. But I also just appreciated that there's real sacrifice involved in what they're doing. 
And I love what you said about the sacrifices that people make in order to make people laugh. I also like that we were like, oh, this is a happy moment in the chapter. And we've just made it about sacrifice and suffering. I've worked my ways on you, Turkile. <laughs> well, let's move swiftly on to the third level of lecture, which is starting to think about what experiences have we had that we see mirrored in this piece of text? Do you want to read it for us, Vanessa? Happily. Deftly spraying two doxies at once as they soared straight for his nose, Harry moved closer to George and muttered out of the corner of his mouth, what are skiving snack boxes? <laughs> it just reminds me of something that I feel like I learn again and again, which is that I am more productive when I'm next to somebody. So like I was putting off doing laundry and putting off doing laundry. And then my friend Julia was like, do you want to do laundry tonight? And I was like, yes. It's just more fun and doable if you're with somebody else while doing it. I don't know. I I like always want to go on errands with somebody else. I'm like, I'll go on three errands with you if you'll come on one errand with me because I will never go on that errand if I have to go by myself. Right. And like we went night swimming again a few nights ago, but like neither of us would have gone on our own. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So it's just, right, like, they're they're being productive and, like, they're cleaning, but, like, it's just so much more fun if there are several of you. A hundred percent. What about you, Casper? I mean, it also reminds me of when you're kind of sneakily talking about something that, you know, you shouldn't be and, like, the person who's in charge or the teacher in the room is only a few feet away, but you, like, have a little side conversation anyway. And just that that feeling of Maybe this is just me, but like maneuvering around the rules is extremely satisfying. And I feel like Harry hasn't had that feeling very much here. Like, you know, he got information yesterday, but he doesn't feel empowered. And in this moment, you just feel like you've maneuvered yourself smartly and, and you've had your way in the face of resistance. And so I think I definitely recognize that feeling. So that brings us to our final stage of lecture, which is Traditionally, Guijo II would ask, what is God saying to us through this biblical text? And we always ask the question, what is the text telling us? What, what is it inviting us to do? Do you feel called to anything having read this sentence, deftly spraying two doxies at once? As they soared straight for his nose, Harry moved closer to George and muttered out of the corner of his mouth, what a skiving snack box is. I do. You know, Ariana just told me a story yesterday about she just moved and she and her roommates were like, sort of sad about the fact that they're in a new city. And Ariana's answer to that was like, well, let's go out and make friends. And they like had this really positive experience. And my reaction to being sad is like, well, let's indulge that sadness and get into bed and watch a sad movie and cry. And I just think Ariana's right and I'm wrong. And I think we see that here, right? Like my instinct is to just go be alone and I think we see immediately that like chit chat gets Harry into such a better mood. And so I think I feel called to not indulging sadness, but rather like going out and looking for community when I'm feeling sad. What about you, Casper? It really struck me this fourth time reading that Harry's asking a question about something he doesn't know. And that the text tells us that Harry moved closer to George, which might just be so he can audibly whisper, but I was in a meeting recently where someone said, mentioned an event that everyone else seemed to know what it was. And I just kind of was like, uh-huh, yeah, I know too. I had no idea. And so I like what Harry is doing here. And I feel cool to, when I don't know something, just kind of move closer 
to the person be like, hey, what is this thing that everyone seems to understand? Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's time for this week's voicemail. Hello, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. I'm a humanities professor at a large state university in upstate New York. I clearly believe that text is sacred, or I would not have earned an MA and a PhD in literature and fought the difficult job market for a faculty position in academia. But one thing among many I have learned through the podcast is that we should treat other people as sacred as well. I don't think either of you have said that phrase verbatim, that we should treat other people as sacred, but it is something I find myself thinking about often as you discuss Molly Weasley, Snape, Hermione, Harry, and house elves. There are a few ways I feel the podcast has changed the way I think and interact with others, but there's one incident in particular that stands out, perhaps because it happened only a week ago. In addition to teaching my 4-3 course load, I'm the chair of a committee that organizes and runs our university's only public humanities program. For the past six months, one of my committee members has been quite a problem. She is 10 years older than me, but I'm not sure that's a reason for her to treat me like a child. Since last February, she's been insulting to me, immensely disrespectful, and generally disagreeable. And I'm not the only one who noticed. For the past three and a half months, I've been trying to get her to meet with me face-to-face so we can discuss her behavior, but she's been dodging me and finding excuses not to meet, even when I offer to drive 40 minutes to meet her at a location closer to her house. Finally, last Monday, the first day of the new semester, after I finished my fourth class of the day, we met by the fountain on campus. 
And I'm sure she wanted to meet in public because I'm from New Jersey, which means I can yell and get loud. And she probably has a point about that. But I didn't yell, not once. And when I say this meeting was two and a half hours of her circular arguments and bold-faced lies, you can imagine how badly I wanted to yell. But in the back of my mind were Molly and Snape and Hermione and Harry, and especially Casper and Vanessa, reminding me that we should be treating other people as sacred. And so I didn't yell at her, not once, although I did correct her and stand up for myself, but with far greater respect than she had been showing to me. Even more to the point, at the end of the two and a half hour conversation, I said to her, look, I'm sorry for the parts that were my responsibility, and I forgive you for the parts that were yours. I hope to hear the same from you so we can move forward. She stopped in her tracks, because we were walking at that point, and said, wow, that's incredibly generous. I'm sorry too, and I forgive you as well. And at our next committee meeting two days later, she apologized to the entire committee, especially to me, and we have since been able to go back to being adults with more interesting and important things to do than bicker amongst ourselves. Now, before listening to this podcast, I don't think, in fact, I know that I was not capable of saying something like this, let alone coming up with it and believing it wholeheartedly. I don't think it would have occurred to me to consider other people as sacred, but this is my new mantra. It will make me a better friend, wife, sister, daughter, certainly a better professor and colleague, and I'm trying to make this sentiment my new North Star. I wanted you to know this because as critics and theorists, we don't often get credit for more than pulling apart a text and picking out every last nit, but what you three have created is sacred in and of itself, and I'm so grateful for what you do and will continue to do long after we've run out of Harry Potter chapters to read together. So thank you so much, and keep doing what you do. First of all, Ray, you're amazing. I love that idea of treating people as sacred, and I know Vanessa said it to me in person. I don't know if we've ever said it on the podcast, but I love that that's how you've taken the message of this podcast to act out in your life. And I want to credit you for your patience and for your generosity in this interaction. You know, they don't always turn out well, those interactions, but I think you just modeled it so beautifully for all of us to try and come into conflict with grace and understanding it feels like you created space for this colleague to actually be the best person that she is. And everyone is happier for it. So I'm so grateful that you're a fan of the show and for everyone who's kind of taking these questions that we're all holding together into their own lives so beautifully. I feel like doing this podcast has made me a better person. It's like certainly made me a more forgiving person. So it's really nice to think that people out there feel the same way. Yeah. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. There are so many people in it. Who did you choose to bless? So I know I just blessed her last week, but I am again going to bless Molly Weasley. First of all, I love that she pulls out Gilderoy Lockhart's book. Like, such a great callback. Her crush runs deep. I love it. But, you know, she's just like, again, invisible women's labor, but like she's completely taken over and like taken charge of this really important task of making this headquarters hospitable at all. And 
It just makes me think of all of the women who have served and sacrificed in order for bigger tasks to be done, but because we often don't tell women's stories or women were relegated to certain roles in these stories, we don't think of them as important parts of these revolutions. And Molly is a soldier in this war, and we will see her fight in the war in a really exciting way at book seven, but she is already a soldier in this war here. And so I just want to offer a blessing to invisible efforts that are part of bigger resistances everywhere. What about you, Casper? We haven't really talked about Ron in this chapter. And there's a tiny moment where when Harry says the word Voldemort, Ron like <gasps> has a sharp intake of breath. And in, you know, we've been talking about memories. That name holds so many memories, even for someone like Ron, who was only just born at the time of, of Voldemort's demise. And to me, that really speaks to the trauma that's in the Weasley family that Ron carries, and in just like the cultural trauma that they're all swimming in. And so, you know, sometimes we hear stories about the past or in our family that still shape how we react to people or places or things. And I just want to offer a blessing for Ron and anyone who has those moments of a sharp intake of breath and, and just a sense of fear. It's hard to be afraid. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes, which I love to read. You can send us a voicemail, harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com, or come to one of our live shows. We're going to be in Denver, in Chicago, in Austin, and Cambridge, Mass., as well as our weekend away in Florida in February, which is going to be amazing. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 7, The Ministry of Magic, through the theme of Progress. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Trakyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Evan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. We'd like to thank Ray Molstock for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Amanda Madigan, Stephanie Paulsell, and Bridget Goggin. Thanks, everyone. ever do you listen to stuff while you clean oh i always listen to podcasts when i'm folding laundry and that kind of thing yeah, yeah. makes the time go have by. you tried the podcast harry potter and the sacred times that sounds a bit weird <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so weird you shouldn't <laughs> listen it's legit strange <laughs>